As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. So I thought, well, he must be a promising left-back from the youth team. And Arsene Wenger, after the game, said something along the lines of, yeah, he's not a left-back, but he's the best player in the youth team. Hi there, hello, welcome. This is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast, and I'm Ali Maxwell. In today's episode, we will be talking about shapeshifters, or perhaps more accurately, role shifters. A discussion about positional changes, focusing on football players whose accepted positions and roles have become markedly changed into new roles, maybe in different areas of the pitch entirely. And joining me to talk about this is Mark Kerry and Michael Cox, who shapeshift from writers to podcasters effortlessly every week. Hello, guys. Hello, Ali. Michael, we did a, a big old preview of the North London derby with Ahmed last week. I really enjoyed it. I thought it set the game up really well. Um, personally, for me, watching that game on Saturday lunchtime. As it was, Arsenal 3-1 winners on the day. So having previewed it comprehensively, now I want your main takeaways from that game. Well, one of Alman's main points was that Tottenham's build-up play has been really poor this season. And I think that was true throughout that game. In fact, not just the build-up play. I thought just the passing was very poor. And I think a couple of times in the first half, Really, Tottenham might have been in with with uh, Son uh, playing the ball into Kane. He played a couple of really poor passes. But in the end, I thought Spurs were a little bit meek. And it was really just about Arsenal and how they adapted their, their system. So they started off with their usual approach of playing almost a front five in possession, which is Martinelli, Xhaka, Jesus, Odegaard and Saka. Um, and they had lots of pressure in the first half. I didn't think they created that many clear-cut chances. And the thing that changed in the second half was they turned the front five into a front six um, with uh, a change of role from uh, Ben Ben White, uh, who went from playing kind of a supporting inside right back to really uh, overlapping, getting down the outside. And not only did he cross uh, quite dangerously twice, but he also let uh, it meant Saka could come inside. And that brought the second goal and I think brought a lot of Arsenal's best moments. So I thought it was a, a real tactical victory for, for Mikhail Arteta mm. in terms of his in-game changes, which I know it might sound silly considering Arsenal are top of the league. But I, I thought the way he, he changed his approach um, midway through the second half against Manchester United a few weeks ago actually really cost Arsenal that game. So I think in a way, he kind of needed that. On the flip side, that's away at Chelsea and away at Arsenal where you have analysed Conte's Tottenham and considered him to have come out second best in a tactical battle in a big game at both away games we should say so things might be different at the Tottenham Stadium when, when those fixtures happen again but it, it wasn't a great day for Spurs was it particularly in terms of that tactical discussion in terms of build up how they look to create chances and goals it strikes me that when it goes well when they counter well when they transition well it, it all looks wonderful. But if and when they don't, Michael, it, it can look very, very tough to watch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the problem with, with counter-attacking football or this style of football where they depend on a few moments. You either get those moments or you don't. I know it's a, a basic thing to say, but that Manchester City game, away at Manchester City last year, I mean, they had maybe four attacks and created three really good chances. Um, and it's not a massive difference between 
having those moments and not. And those Son passes, like I say, one in particular where Kane just looked at him like, why on earth have you played the pass like that? Yeah, if he plays that properly, Spurs are in and they might go ahead in the game and then that style of football becomes even easier for them to play. Um, but yeah, it, it was poor. And we're also speaking a day after another Spurs 0-0, uh, which I haven't caught up with yet, but I gather was more of the same. Yeah, we're in the middle of, of that Champions League match day. Mark Liverpool got it done last night against Rangers, uh, looking much more comfortable than in in some recent games. The, the, the sort of tactical question thrown up when I looked at the team here was Klopp went with Diaz, Jota, Salah and Nunez all on the pitch. Uh, how does that look with four quite such attack-minded players? Yeah, it was an interesting one. I mean, as much as anything, Klopp finally changed from his trusted 4-3-3 to a, what he called after the game a 4-4-2. Probably could mm-hmm. argue it was a 4-2-4, maybe even a 4-2-3-1. But the point is that, as you say, you put four more, far more attack-minded uh, players all in, in the starting lineup, And there were some good rotations, really, I thought, between Jota and, and Nunez in particular, which meant that they were finding a lot of really good pockets of space. Um, I thought that it meant that Mo Salah had to play a bit more of a far more disciplined role. I'd say a little bit more withdrawn, um, collecting it slightly deeper than he maybe would have, which I don't think obviously gets the best out of him. But because they had the four in, in total, it was far more productive. And obviously that meant that it was a midfield two of Jordan Henderson and, and Thiago, and they provided a lot of good protective cover to to plug that gap. And there was a lot mentioned about Trent Alexander-Arnold being able to venture forward and Henderson being able to plug that gap. I think that he's been doing that historically for the past few seasons anyway. So I don't think that's necessarily a new phenomenon, but I think the, the post-match reaction was kind of hung up on that a little bit. But I think that as much as anything, I don't think Rangers really offered that much in the way of attack. So I think it was a bit of a kinder game for, for Liverpool and obviously Jurgen Klopp to to try out the the four attackers and maybe could be a blueprint for, for mm. Liverpool against sides who typically play a you know a deeper block. I think obviously Liverpool have got Arsenal at the weekend. I don't think that they will go with the same formation or style against Arsenal. But if they need a goal, then they could maybe um, move towards that. So options for the future, basically. Michael, as a neutral, I would very much like this to become the new look Liverpool approach, if only because it would be a response to criticisms of quite how open they have been this season, quite how easy to play through and to create chances against. It would be like fighting fire with with petrol, the (laughs) nuclear option. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think it was quite fun. I kind of agree with Mark. I'm not sure they will play that way against Arsenal. Um, I saw the first half of this before realising it was probably game over and and turned over elsewhere. And I think it was partly a reaction to how they've played, but partly because they were up against a side who were going to, you know, they were defensive Rangers. They played a back five. They didn't offer that much going forward. So it was, yeah, it was almost like, why don't we just play an extra attacking player? And I thought playing with the two deep in midfield meant Rangers too had to come quite far up the pitch to close down. And that created space for, for Jota and Nunes to a certain extent between the lines. But so, yeah, I thought it was probably the right move on the day, but um, I'm not sure they'll play the same way against Arsenal. Well, their city rivals, Everton, a quick word on them, Michael. They've cracked out back-to-back wins in the Premier League, which added to four draws before that. It means that they've got that rather fun quirk where they're now six unbeaten, having previously been winless in six before these two wins because they lost the first two games of the season before the run of draws. Um, whatever the, the the stat is, they are looking a little less crisis-y. Um, Mark, any particular reasons for that, you think? I think the signings obviously help. I think they've got a far far stronger spine this season. Obviously, Connor Cody's come in and, and James Tarkovsky and for all that we like to talk about tactics and data, I think that they've just brought the kind of the soft skills of good communication, good leadership mm. and good organisation, I think, which has kind of been lacking at, at times in Everton's defence. Um, I've been impressed with Amadou Anana in the middle. I think he's a really good, aggressive uh, defensive midfielder, strong off the ball, protects the defence pretty well. Um, so that's sort of, yeah, spine going, going through the middle. I think that... You know, if they have a fit and firing Dominic Calvert-Lewin coming back in terms of that presence between the posts, I think that will obviously help a lot. Neil Mopé's come in and done okay, but is a completely kind of different style of player to to Calvert-Lewin. So I think they could improve, you know, further from there. But, you know, I think from an attacking 
perspective, they're still not exactly free scoring. Let's sort of have it right. They've only scored seven goals across the eight games, which isn't great. Uh, I think it's fair to say. And I think their expected goals isn't too dissimilar from that either. So it's not exactly like they're massively underperforming in terms of chance creation, but in the short term, going well. Um, I must admit, I'm a little bit sceptical about Everton's improvement. I thought they were very lucky to win uh, the previous weekend against West Ham. And I mean, it's it's kind of a good example of why football is so difficult to analyse. They've had eight games this, this season and none of them have been won by more than a single goal. I mean, it's such fine margins every week. And I think there's an interesting XG story here because Everton, as we speak, currently have the best def- uh, defensive record in the league. But in expected goals terms, according to the model you look at, they've got the third, fourth or fifth worst mm. uh, expected goals against tally. So I'm I'm intrigued what will happen with Everton. I mean, they're certainly not looking as bad as they were a few weeks ago, but um, I'm a bit sceptical for now about their improvement, I must say. Well, let's talk about something that I know you're very positive about, and it's the, the bedrock of today's main topic. One Everton player attracting a lot of praise, positive attention, is Alex Iwobi. And this noteworthy change in, in position, change in role, it's it's working very, very well. Mark, just as a primer, remind us, what's Iwobi's role now and how's it working both for the team and for Iwobi personally? Yeah, well, he's playing far more in a, a central midfield role within the, the 4-3-3. Um, and I think it's, it's sort of been channeled from... Lampard knowing that he's got good physicality, he's got good energy. And it was almost like that was kind of being wasted when previously he was in a uh, a wing role or in a wide role, kind of shuttling up and down. And he has the the quality on the ball and off the ball to be able to offer far much more in, a, in kind of a central role. And what he does offer is, yeah, great ball progression within those central areas and he drives the team upfield, um, especially when Everton needs someone to to drive upfield when they're sort of thinking about things like a counter-attack. And I think any player who can dribble in central areas and maybe get out of trouble and um, you know commit other other players within central areas is a real advantage. And it's early days, but in, in the numbers, he's attempted 2.1 dribbles per 90 this season um, in a midfield zone, which is in the, the top 7% for midfielders in the Premier League. So he can find those kind of neat touches, but he can also, as I say, drive the team forward, which is definitely needed for Everton. Mm. Michael, I always think it's a bit gauche to to brag on a podcast. I don't actually think it comes across very well sometimes for for the listener. So let me do it for you. Um, how many years ago did you write this about Alex Iwobi? An even more intriguing possibility would be fielding Iwobi as an eight in a four three three. Such a move would be a relatively dramatic redeployment on paper, but Iwobi's statistical contribution tallies nicely with the expectations for a player in that role. Yeah, I always thought he was a little bit miscast as a winger. I just don't think his qualities necessarily suit playing out wide. I mean, he's relatively quick, but not an amazing dribbler. He's never been prolific in terms of goals. He's not a great assister. The thing I've always liked about him is I think he's quite intelligent and I think he plays kind of simple but effective passes, Um, particularly when he was at Arsenal. He tended to play best when he played in a system with wingbacks and he'd kind of just drift inside drag the opposition fullback narrow and play passes to the overlapping wingback. And I just always thought he was a he was a deeper and a narrower player than was considered as a mm. winger. Um, so yeah, that, that was three years ago. I wasn't actually... I mean, the article at the time was kind of talking about how uh, Gilfie Sigurdsson wasn't playing well as number 10 and Iwobi probably should be in that role. And it's only at the end, really, where I said maybe number eight would be better. But yeah, he's... I'm pleased that someone's kind of figured him out. You know, I think Lampard obviously is... Uh, a former number eight himself, someone who knows the qualities for that role. And uh, yeah, I'm just pleased he's uh, getting a run in the side and looking positive and looking confident. Um, but yeah, I, I think he's kind of just been mischaracterized for his whole career, really. And I don't mm. think it helped that he went to Everton almost as their second choice when they'd spent a couple of months trying to get um, Wilfred Zaha. Um, so it was like, yeah, Wobi is the, the second choice Zaha. And they're really, really different players. So, yeah, I'm just pleased to see him doing well because I've always quite liked him as a player and always felt there was some potential waiting to be unleashed. Mm. The concept of, of intelligence within a player is a difficult one. Well, it's impossible to measure, really. Michael, there are ways in which football observers, scouts, analysts, whatever it might be, see intelligence, you know, can see it with their eyes when they watch a player. And that's what you saw 
with Iwobi, even when he was playing in a position that, that perhaps wasn't getting the most out of him. Therefore, is it, is it a given, is it a truth that intelligence as an attribute is more valuable in the centre of the pitch, in a central midfield position, let's say, than anywhere else on the pitch? Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, but why? Uh, I suppose because there's generally it's generally tighter spaces. Uh, you've usually got more players around you. Um, it's more difficult to work out what's around you because you're often getting the ball in, you know, situations with your back to players coming towards you. I think it's easier to see the entire game when you're out wide. Um, and yeah, I mean. I suppose the particular intelligence with with Iwobi, in my opinion, is uh, he plays passes that are not eye-catching but are effective. And I think that's basically a good sign of intelligence. I think if you take the opposite of that, players who play Hollywood balls that aren't Mm. effective is very much the opposite of intelligence. So, um, yeah, he does just look a a bit more comfortable centrally. And he's, you know, he's he's good physically as well. He He can handle himself. In the centre of the pitch, I think he protects the ball well when he receives it on the turn. So yeah, he just just looks more suited to playing there. Interesting one to try to try and, and quantify, Mark, to try and and find out with data that this concept of of intelligence very very difficult. I would say I'm sure that there are ways of at least sort of creating a proxy metric. You know, a mixture of things like progressive passes, but also making sure that 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 you. There's some ball retention in there, so you're not giving the ball away into, in dangerous areas, giving the ball to the opposition. That there, there are, I imagine, there is work being done on that front to try and find a, a sort of football IQ metric or measurement, if you will. Yeah, I'm trying to think of one exactly off the top of my head and, and sort of struggling. But I think Michael hit upon a, a good point where, you know, effective passes that maybe only a five-yard pass, but it unlocks a, an attack for someone else to go and break into space. That's you know, the things that we've spoken about before, possession value, expected threat, those sorts of things where it actually does give value to maybe undervalued, underrated players when you know that the actions that, yeah, may not look glamorous, Hollywood, as Michael said, you know, actually are truly effective. So I'd be interested to see what Iwobi's uh, expected threat or possession value is for Everton um, this season Mm. and last season as well. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, a chart that I saw on Twitter yesterday from Michael, who's an Everton fan at Greenall EFC, uh, a chart plotting on the one axis tackles and interceptions per 90 and on the other progressive passes per 90. I mean, Iwobi, and this is just the Everton squad, Iwobi is a clear standout as someone who is offering both of those things rather than one and not the other. And uh, I think that, that sort of wraps up quite well just just how important he is for this Everton side right now. And it's noteworthy and interesting to us, this change of positions, this change of roles, I think because it is still pretty rare in top-level football, in professional football, I would suggest a very small percentage of players truly change positions outside of, you know, just filling in for a game or two due to injury or suspension or something like that. And therefore, it, it's interesting to to discuss. First, I wanted to ask you guys about the concept of a, a player having a natural position. Mark, do you think that is a thing? Does every football player, professional or otherwise, inherently have a natural position? And if so... Why? Where does that come from? Who who decides? It's a hard one to to answer, really. I think there's, you know, on a case by case basis, you'll find such difference for if you ask, you know, every player across Europe, for example. But I, I think it's a whole host of things. I think you know some players might be so good in a certain position or have a certain attribute that you end up finding a place for them or build a team around them, should we say? But you also got to think about how a player can initially get into the team. And that might be a, a combination of maybe luck, maybe, you know, things like rotation at academy level that often a player is tried in certain positions and they just fall upon, stumble upon a position that works for them. And sometimes it's it's filling in gaps for the first team and just staying there. And I think that Trent Alexander-Arnold being a good example of that, that I think he was looking with the academy staff, sat down with the academy staff to look at what position might be most likely that he could break into the first team on. And I think he only started playing at right back at 17 and had to obviously work on his defensive side of the game. So sometimes it is 
serendipity um, and luck and someone who we class as one of the best right backs now in in the world um, maybe a debatable one in the past week or so um, in all facets of his game but still it, it shows that the reason that he came to be in that position was you know serendipity as I say Quite remarkable that if, if that's a true story about Trent Alexander-Arnold isn't it Michael that the fact that someone who's one of the best central midfield players, let's say, in their age group, certainly in the region, if not nationally, could sit down at 17 and plot a route to a first team, both understanding that breaking in at central midfield is going to be unlikely or improbable because of the level that Liverpool play at, and yet right back could be the one and for it all to come together as it has done. is It's pretty remarkable to me, that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um quite intelligent by him and and the club to work that out. And it does help to be versatile as a young player when you're looking for your big break because you never know where you're going to get an injury crisis in the first team. I remember a long time ago um, when Sebastian Larson was at Arsenal and he made his debut as a left back and I hadn't heard of him. So I thought, well, he must be a promising left back from the youth team. And Arsene Wenger, after the game, said something along the lines of, yeah, he's not a left back, but he's the best player in the youth team. And... Therefore, he was the player most suited to playing with the first team. Uh, and I mean, he clearly wasn't a left back. He wasn't left footed and he wasn't very quick. But yeah, the, the point stands. You never know where you're going to get a chance. So you can just become a certain type of player. I mean, uh, Paolo Maldini was not a left back. He was a, a right back or a centre back until there was a, a vacancy in the AC Milan first team. And he became maybe the most revered left back of all time. So maybe that's a, a lesson. I also think it, it it seems to me anecdotally that you know one's youth career, where one plays, who one plays for, the, the coaches do have such a big impact on the the upbringing of a young player on the early stages of development before we see them playing for the first team. That I feel like we're missing a trick here by not having a phrase which is instead of natural position is is nurtural position. Because it's it's the it's the nature versus nurture, right? Like nurture speaks to the upbringing, education, and environment of of a young person. Essentially, it, it strikes me, Michael, that that let's say for the majority of professional footballers would be maybe more important than something natural within them. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm not sure I have anything to add to that, but I agree with you. I also think it's interesting to discuss aspects of a player that are, let's say, psychological versus aspects of a player that are physical and how they end up in certain positions. Because it strikes me that you have certain positions on the pitch where men, a certain psychological attributes are important. Let's, let's drop the word intelligence in there in terms of being a central midfield player. If you have no vision, if you can't handle heavy traffic, you're not going to play in central midfield. There's probably something to do with strikers and, and, and that discussion of poachers' instinct, which is, again, very hard to measure, but that we think that we can see at times. Um, with with centre-backs, the, the appetite for defending gets discussed. These are essentially mental things, psychological qualities, and then there are physical attributes that lend themselves to certain positions. And, and I guess fullback is, as always, quite interesting here because was it Gary Neville who says no one wants to be a fullback. No one grows up thinking they're going to be a fullback. Carragher, so, it was Carragher having Carragher. a dig at Neville. You'll be unsurprised to hear. <laughs> there you go. But but then that, that that's interesting to me because then maybe fullback's the one where there's nothing particularly specific in terms of mentality or psychology to play fullback. But physically, well, absolutely, and particularly in the modern game. Yeah, I think you're right. I think your general point about the psychology of things is, is really interesting. And I think there is something in your personality of, I mean, if you can broadly just separate footballers into attackers and defenders, which is a very uh, raw way of doing things. <laughs> but you do need a certain level of consistency to play in defence. You've got to be, you have got to be consistent. You can't have, as an attacker, if you have one good game and one bad game, you're probably considered to be in decent form. I think as a defender, if you have one good game and one bad game, you're considered a massive liability and opponents will look to target you the next week. And therefore, I think when it comes to someone like Paul Pogba, he's always struck me as just an inconsistent player. Maybe that is, maybe his inconsistency is as a result of other technical issues. But I think with a player like that, 
I'd kind of want him higher up the pitch. I just think having an inconsistent player in front of your defence is going to be an issue. Whereas if he's a number 10 and he can have his off weeks, then uh, that's going to be less of an issue. So I think you're right. Personality absolutely does come into it. And there are some there are some players who play in defence who take a while, should we say take a while to have the mentality required to be a centre-back because they don't have it naturally, I don't think, mm-hmm. but they can develop it. And given that, I'm saying that this is still quite rare, a positional change. Is this an area of the game, do we think, that is still stuck in the past or is still guided by traditional visions of, of a player's position where they can or can't play? Like, why aren't more players adaptable or, or having the roles that they play changed more regularly, Michael, do you think? I think players are much more adaptable and versatile these days than they used to be. I think particularly in attacking positions. If you look, for example, England's midfield options at the moment, attacking midfield options, whether it's Foden, Mount, Grealish, Saka, James Madison apparently is their flavour of the week. Uh, They can all pretty much play on the right, on the left, uh, or through the middle in various kind of different ways. And I just don't think that would have been the case 20 years ago with the David Beckham generation. For example, you would never have found David Beckham playing on the left. Um, and so why has that happened? Is it because the players have changed and been coached in different ways? A little bit, but I think it's more that the game has changed. And I think actually positions are more similar to one another. You don't get any wingers anymore or wide midfielders anymore like Beckham who are basically just crosses. And that's why Beckham really couldn't have played on the left or didn't play on the left. Whereas now, wherever you play, it's kind of about short passing. It's about interplay. It's about dribbling. It's about offering a goal threat from wherever you are in attacking zones. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the concepts that, or one of the relatively few concepts that has almost been linear throughout football's tactical evolution. I think the, the positions just have become more similar. Attackers have to defend. Defenders have to attack. I think that's what we say these days. But I think to a certain extent, every generation has said that it just becomes more and more extreme. So yeah, I don't I don't see any reason why in the future we can't have more players who are basically defenders, midfielders, or attackers at a young age. And obviously after that I think you tend to want to specialise. I mean yeah, I completely agree. I think it does speak to just how well rounded you have to be to to get a place in the starting eleven at the the highest level. And I think in general it speaks to the the recent piece that John Muller Muller did on player roles. I know that he came onto this podcast and spoke about it and how players within the same position can look very different in their their output on the field or indeed, as we spoke about, how the same player can evolve their role either within or between seasons, have multiple facets to their their role, not just obviously one maybe like a David Beckham of just sort of getting across in if we're going to be, if I'm going to sort of say it in a reductive manner, but yeah, depending on on the context, of course. But you know, we even saw it within the game from from Ben White. The the piece that Michael did brilliantly showed mm-hmm. from Ben White that you can change your role nominally a, a right back, but change your role between the first half and the second half. So that that versatility and, and thinking about things in roles rather than necessarily positions where if you were to just line up loads of right backs um, you'd see that okay they're all in the same position but very very different in terms of the the output and the um, the tactical uh, tactical role they have to play. I mean this is maybe going slightly off topic but I think in terms of players having to be all-rounders I think the issue now is you just can't really have any weaknesses in part because of the um, the intensity of modern scouting of opposition scouting. I think Back in the day, if you were kind of mid-table, bottom half, right back, let's say, and you had one real issue in your game, teams just wouldn't do enough scouting in order to really expose that. Whereas I think now they do. I mean, they have video from every single game this player's ever played. They have statistical analysis of it. And if there is something you are weak at, then you will get targeted. And I think that's that's why it's so hard to be a, a top-level sportsman in the modern era. You know, you can apply this to other sports as well. I mean... In cricket, if you can play a couple of shots as a batsman to certain balls, you know that once you get to the test level, you're just not going to get those balls. They're just going to target you again and again and again in your weak area. And it must be so psychologically difficult. I mean, I don't know about whether you guys can relate this to the way you play, but when I was a kid and I played tennis, right, I had a really good forehand, a really really bad backhand like a lot of people. 
And when I used to play people, first couple of games, I'd, I'd do quite well. I'd win them. And then after that, they really, well, I'm just going to hit every shot mm-hmm. to his backhand. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't win it. And it's like, that's my, what it must be like to be a professional sportsman these days in in those games where you can be targeted. You, you're just going to find yourself constantly peppered with the type of thing you don't want to be facing. And I think that leads to why coaches move towards all-rounders rather than players who are really good at some things and really bad at other things. The forehand backhand thing is fascinating because um again keeping it personal briefly uh, my brother older brother um big influence on me left footed in football whereas i was right footed and he couldn't he couldn't accept it so he basically like as if he was my coach albeit we're just playing in the in the park in the garden was like couldn't accept me being right footed so made me kick the like forced me under duress to kick the mm-hmm. ball with my left foot to the point where now in you know sun, at Sunday league level that is now something of a strength as I can actually kick the ball quite well with my left foot where a lot of people are less good with their weaker foot and you saying that Michael made me think do we think it's a fair assumption to suggest that players will continue to become more comfortable on their weaker foot I'm sure that trend has already is already moving upwards pretty sharply but there are still a lot of very one-footed players even at the top level are we going to see that a next generation or two generations down you know, like 80% just really ambidextrous players. Maybe we'll increase. Yeah, I, I did try and look at some stats for this about a year ago and kind of got lost trying to work out how you would do it. But yeah, there are certain players that come through. I mean, I think Saka's a good example, actually. He's left-footed but can really easily go on his right foot. And yeah, I, th- I think it is something that has been drilled into players a little bit more than a couple of generations ago. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, let's get into some player-specific examples outside of, of Justin Wobby um, and see if there's anything interesting that gets chucked up. Let's start with Ben White, as he's been referenced a couple of times on this pod already. Ben White, the right-back, having been Ben White, the centre-back. Uh, he was a, a centre-back in a two uh, on loan at Leeds in their championship campaign where they won the, the title. Uh, he was then a centre-back in a three. Uh, generally, I believe, the outside centre-back in that Brighton side. And he's moved just a little bit further to the right-hand side to play for Arsenal. Uh, Michael, do you think this is a temporary move for, for White or a permanent one? I'm not sure. I mean, he, he has played, as you say, right of a, a three before. He has been able to fill in in midfield before. So, it's you know, the role he started at uh, against Tottenham, that kind of narrow role, it's not that far outside his comfort zone. And I think it's worth pointing out that this time last year, or particularly after the first couple of games when Arsenal lost, certainly to Brentford. There was a big thing, a bit like with Martinez now, where people were saying, oh, he's not big enough. He's not, you know, he's not a completely natural centre-back. So it's probably not a massive shift for him, really, to go out to the right. But I think what was impressive was that he did, you know, in the second half, as I say, I think he was the key to unlocking the game. I think that was the impressive bit. The bit that he, you know, he suddenly did become quite a rampaging, overlapping right back. He can cross the ball. I always think crossing's a thing where if you move a centre-back out to the right, it takes ages for them to get it. 
And then once they get it, they suddenly become quite good. I think of Ivanovic like that. I remember when he first started playing right back at Chelsea, just just didn't move in the right way. wasn't getting into the right positions and suddenly became quite a good crosser. So maybe that will happen. But, you know, to, to kind of refer back to what we said earlier, it's circumstantial, isn't it? I mean, if uh, if Gabriel or um, uh, Saliba gets, gets injured tomorrow and is out for the season, then White's probably back to centre-back. So it can all change so quickly. Yeah, I agree. I do think it is yeah partly circumstantial. I think that, again, it links back to what we've spoken about before in the a player's intelligence and ability to, to take on messages and quickly, as you say, with the, the Spurs game, even at half-time, changing his role from first half to second half. And I don't know if you've seen the uh, the, the Arsenal documentary of, of All or Nothing and Ben White has sort of sat down with one of the coaches and he's told just how good, obviously, he, he can be. But I think that sort of mentioned just how good his his intelligence is in general, never mind his game intelligence and just how you can just be confident that wherever you do put him, he will do uh, a good job, could do a great job if he were to stay there for a certain period. But he's obviously young enough as well that he doesn't need to necessarily have a specialised position. Um, so mm. as long as he he and Arsenal are playing well, then I'm not sure too many people will, will mind. Do we think that, that White and players like him, could I argue that it, it, to use the ceiling and floor analogy for the one millionth time on this podcast, could I argue that it raises his floor in that he is such a valuable aspect of a squad because he can play in multiple different positions and there's a degree of reliability that we assume he will have in three or four different roles, but potentially keeps his absolute ceiling lower than some other elite players at centre-back or right-back because, is this harsh to say, he will probably never have the attacking output of some of the elite fullbacks, even if he did play well in the second half of the North London derby on that front. And he may never have the physical defensive dominance of some of the elite centre-backs. A lot of this pod is me saying things out loud that I've not thought through and then and then hoping that you'll either shoot them down or say, that's ah, actually an interesting point, Ali. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point, Ali. Um, <laughs> no, I do. I do genuinely think it, it is, and it's it, sometimes you make a, a rod for your own back, don't you? As a as a player who is, I mean, we speak about that word again, versatile. But if you don't necessarily make yourself undroppable by being a specialist, then yeah, do, are you then kind of moved around like a chess piece and don't necessarily guarantee your your place in the starting lineup? I'm thinking of someone like James Milner you know, historically able to fill in and plug a gap anywhere, made a career off it eventually. Um, but would he be the first name in the team sheet? No. Would he be someone that you'd love to have in your squad? Yes. So yeah, it, it's an interesting one. I, I'm not entirely sure, but as I say, as, he's playing well either way, Ben mm. White. So um, I think that if you can carry on doing that and Arsenal obviously top of the league, don't need to worry about things too much, then um, I think he's... I don't know, I'm trying to think whether he's a better option than Tommy Asso at the moment as well. I think he probably is. And and lastly on Ben White, what does this positional change do for his England chances? On a very basic level, it strikes me he, he's moved from a position where England don't always seem that strong to a position where it's become a meme how many good right-backs England have. Yeah, I think it's spot on. And uh, I think the if we're talking purely in England terms, the beneficial shift would have been if he'd moved to left-sided centre-back because that's where England mm. do not have many options. So, yeah, it's bad for his England chances. Uh, wasn't in the squad. Can't imagine he'll be in the squad for Qatar. Right, let's move on to some other examples. Last season in the Premier League, I'd say that the, the most famous example was Joel Linton. Uh, Mark, remind me what happened with Joel Linton and why this happened, uh, what kind of a player he is now for Newcastle compared to 18 months ago. Yeah, it's an interesting one. He he obviously started as a, as a number nine when he moved to Newcastle, um, but he had a terrible goal-scoring record. He was a bit of a, a laughing stock for his attacking output. So this was when bought under Steve Bruce. Um, two goals, I think, in his first full season. So him himself was a, was a bit of a meme for for how poor his, his attacking output was. And then I think he was moved to, to more of a winger role um, at first, but then Eddie Howe essentially found a, a place for him on the, the left of a midfield three, similar to, to a Wobby in that regard. And he's looked really comfortable in, in that midfield role. And 
you know, you look at his his on-ball metrics itself and he's, he's actually really quite low action in terms of the, the volume of touches that he has. 59 touches per 90, which is in the bottom 50% of midfielders in the Premier League. And that's that's low, even accounting for the lower possession that Newcastle um, sort of have compared to others. That's still on the low side. But he just gives Newcastle a, a real amount of energy in that midfield. He presses really well. It's one of his key attributes um, when he was at, at Hoffenheim as well. And he can support the attack really well in kind of more of a, a second wave rather than being that that focal point. And I, I think this is a, the key point that the, the perception of him when he was bought was that he was going to be a clinical number nine, someone who you can ask to hold the ball up and, and be that clinical goal scorer more in the mold of, if I'm right, Solomon Rondon kind of before him and historically and Andy Carroll in that sort of mold for Newcastle. And he was never that. His role at Hoffenheim was more of a number 10, more of someone who would play behind the striker and support the attack, come on to the play behind the striker and play far more transitional rather mm. than being that focal point. So I think it was more, as much as anything, a bit of a um, mistake to sort of pigeonhole him as a number nine when he came such that now when he's coming back into sort of more of a an eight role, it looks like more of a contrast. But I think he was kind of somewhere in between in the first place, <laughs> maybe more as a 10. Um, but it's an interesting one nonetheless. There's a big managerial aspect to this as well, isn't there, in terms of their their vision, their their willingness to, to try something new, even if it might seem unusual or uncomfortable at first. Yeah, that is true. I guess with new signings, it is tough. It's probably difficult to to just completely reformat someone and easier to reformat someone if they've had a bad first season and you say, well, why don't you try something else, mate? So yeah, you're probably right with that. Hey, let's talk about Christian Eriksen now because Christian Eriksen from the Tottenham years seems to me to be quite different to Christian Eriksen, Manchester United player, Michael, in terms of the areas of the pitch in which he's operating. Yeah, you're right. Tottenham, he, he played high up, usually as a number 10. Sometimes he drifted in from wide when Deli Alley played as the number 10. And for Manchester United so far, he's been primarily a deep midfielder, which is interesting for a few reasons. One, because we've said they don't really have many good midfielders in, in that zone over the last couple of years. Second, because they've signed Casemiro, who's still having to knock on the door to get an, into the side. I suspect after conceding six goals at the weekend, maybe the time might be now <laughs> to bring him in. Um, but yeah, he's been interesting in that zone. I mean, he's he's had a couple of really good games, a couple of really bad games. Brentford away, we know he struggled. He conceded the, the possession uh, for, I think, a second goal, was it? Um, he didn't track the runner at the weekend for the first goal scored by Foden. It feels like because he's... Because they, they're playing him and four attacking players. It feels like he's got quite a lot of responsibility in the defensive side of things, even at set pieces and stuff like that. I mean, he, at one point he was, you know, the blocker for Holland for the, the hmm. header, which is always going to be difficult. That said, against Arsenal, when I think Manchester United were a little bit lucky to win, but they did score some very good goals. Two of the goals, he played brilliant line-breaking passes into Fernandes. Um, and that's the kind of qualities they haven't really had that much from the holding midfield role. Um, so it's been interesting to see. I'm not sure how, whether he'll retain his position with Casemiro coming in. Could play him and Casemiro, of course, completely different players. Um, but yeah, my, my suspicion is that he'll be he'll be tried in a few different roles. Uh, I, mem I remember playing him, he played as a false nine at some point, didn't he? Was it first game of the uh, season? Uh, yeah, maybe his first game of the season or United's first yeah. game of the season, yeah. So he's had a, he's had a few different roles this season, it's fair to say. Well, I was going to ask for your guys' sort of thoughts on this as well, because we know how great he is on the ball, but it's difficult to ask so much of him from a defensive standpoint because it's just not necessarily his game. It hasn't, it wasn't at Spurs. It wasn't really to, to a certain extent, to Inter Milan as well. So, is it that because I sort of saw him as maybe a backup to Fernandez because he has that? I mean, that positional similarity, but also that similar quality. But it's hard to have take Fernandez out of the side. So then you maybe drop him into a deeper role, but then you bring Casemiro in. So you think, well, he's maybe not as good from a defensive standpoint as Casemiro, arguably as good as Fernandez from an attacking perspective. So would it be that you either find a new position for him again or drop him out of the side? What what do you think would be the best option there? I would I would always play Fernandez and I'd always play him as number 10. I really like him. I know he has... He goes a little bit back to what I said before about inconsistency. He is inconsistent, 
but I think he has enough moments and enough really good games to pretty much base your, your side around, I would say. Not base your side around if you're playing Ronaldo up front because I think you end up with two players in the free roll and I don't think that works. Um, but yeah, I think, to be frank, I think he's been fantastic for Manchester United whenever Ronaldo isn't playing. Mm. Um, <laughs> so take Ronaldo away and I think, <laughs> yeah, I really like Fernandez, I must say. Yeah, I was going to say, Mark, the I think the most likely outcome from this point is Christian Eriksen who has started seven out of seven league games for Manchester United this season does not go on to, to play quite as high a percentage of minutes as Casemiro beds back in and yet as a backup to Fernandez, if that's what it may be and or a nice option off the bench in a deeper role that's someone with a lot of value to the squad so um, certainly you know a, a good player for, for United to have no doubt about that uh, here's one that, that might not be for life might have just been for Christmas or one weekend uh, Ruben Nevsh of Wolves Michael uh, defensive midfielder turned quarterback centre-back at the weekend um, because of injuries this one uh, how did it go? Uh, he got booked quite early on and I worried a little bit for him because I'm not sure he's got the recovery pace in certain situations. Um, but I thought it was quite interesting. I mean, you know, it's kind of the Connor Cody role they were looking to fill um, with a back three. I know they haven't always played a back three uh, this season. And uh, if you want someone who's not that quick but can play raking diagonal passes to the flanks, then Neves is your man. So, yeah, I'm not sure it will be a, a permanent well, who knows, actually, because we don't even know who Wolves' manager will be this uh, this weekend. But uh, yeah, I thought it was quite a fun a fun experiment, shall we say. Mm. Well, it, it definitely ties into one of my big, like, irrational stances, uh, which I'm pretty sure I've brought up on here before, which is that more deep-lying sprayers should play at centre-back. Specifically, I'm thinking for so-called big six clubs, Let's say, for take it away from Neves for, for a minute, let's say Chelsea are 1-0 down with 35 minutes to go at home to Bournemouth, who are bunkering in and not pressing at all. For me, Jorginho should, should go to centre-back and a centre-back should be taken off for, I mean, whatever, an attacking midfield player, a second striker, a striker, a winger, whatever the, the case may be, depending on who else is on the pitch at, at that given time. And that's because you can assume that the centre-backs are going to have the most touches on the ball likely on the pitch from that point. And therefore, it makes sense to me that you should have your best passer, the passer with the the best range, the best progressive passer with the most vision in that position rather than Koulibaly or Thiago Silva, whoever it might be at, at right centre-back, shall we say. And of course, the flip side is the risk is Jorginho's not very comfortable defending strikers, defending transition. He's not very quick. I still think that the risk of conceding a second goal and almost certainly losing the game is worth the benefit of having your best passer of the ball essentially as a, a quarterback type in a game where obviously you're, you're, you are most likely going to pile on the pressure for the next half an hour of the game. That's always been something I've wanted to see more. Um, not yet, not yet. But the discussion of Neves does link us on nicely to Connor Cody, who's playing in a two at Everton, which doesn't seem like a dramatic change, but given how often people would say, well, Cody can't play in a two before he played in a two, I'd be interested to know, Mark, how you think he's been. Yeah, again, I think it's an interesting one because he, yeah, he was exactly the, the player profile that you mentioned. He was more of a sweeper, more of a sprayer for, for Wolves and he's still very good on the ball at, at Everton, um, starts the attacks really well. But again, I, I mentioned it at the start, he's he's been good alongside Tarkovsky and, and they've done well there. As I say, those soft skills like the leadership, the communication, the organisation, irrespective of whether you're playing in a two and a three, I think that's one of Cody's um, sort of key attributes. I think it also helps that Everton don't exactly play a, a really high line, sort of similar to Wolves where he's not really too exposed in, in doing a lot of running back or pulling into to wide areas where again he could maybe get exposed in a in a one-on-one -on -one. similar to Tarkovsky where they're more comfortable in sort of low blocks and having the game in front of them just sort of hoovering up headering you know anything that comes into the box so I think that's sort of worthy of of thought as well and he's another example of someone who has had a real position change never mind going from a 
defender from a three to a two, but he was a defensive midfielder as he was going through the academy at Liverpool. And I think also the same at Sheffield United and, and Huddersfield and only became a centre-back during his, his time at Wolves, which is why mm. he, I guess he needed that protection um, as a as a sort of a sweeper in a three rather than the two. So this is the first time I think really that he's been sort of an out-and-out centre-back, shall we say. Um, but yeah, done, done well so far. A couple of others just to to mention. I know that Liam wanted us to mention Alexis McAllister at Brighton, uh, a sort of similar perhaps to Ericsson, a kind of eight or ten type, moving to four slash six brackets Argentinian five, as Liam said, which I enjoyed. He's obviously a bit scared of the squad numbers police, uh, of which Michael is obviously the the commander. So we we won't we won't touch on that just yet because I think you could go all day on that. Uh, Musa Gineppo of Southampton's played quite a few games at, at fullback, wingback this season, and I would say that that seems like the most obvious destination for positional changes in the last few years in, in, at the top level. In fact, even at other levels in the EFL, I mean, people are putting all sorts at wing back at the moment. Um, you've got centre midfielders being moved out there because they're tidy in possession. Often the wing backs are having you know more of the ball than than any of the central midfielders because so many teams are playing three five two that the central areas are just you know just an absolute disgrace. Just no <laughs> time or space on the ball at all. You've got some teams playing strikers at wing back. Uh, Stoke have been playing Jacob Brown there recently at right wing back. As far as I can tell, purely because he is the most impressive sort of aerobically, physically, his his numbers in terms of his his engine, his speed, his power is, is so impressive that they wanted him in that role. Um, but let's talk about the, the best examples of this historically, Michael. Focus on, on English football to start with. Who are the, the players that you can think of that had positional tweaks or changes throughout their career at the top level? Not a mid-career one, but I mean, Ashley Cole was a, a striker in Arsenal's youth team. Oh, nice. Um and became obviously a very, very good left back. And also I would say, and this is probably going a little bit too kind of granular, but he went from being regarded as a really attacking left back when he was at Arsenal to by the end of his career, was just really solid defensively, didn't offer that much going forward. We never scored for England, I think I'm right in saying. You don't think of him as a wonderful crosser. He was a good crosser, but yeah, he went from a striker to an attacking left back to a pretty defensive one, which I think is interesting. I mean, certainly thinking of players maybe from what I'll call my era um, growing up, I think there's, it's not a a dramatic change, but you think of the likes of Paul Scholes playing as more of a a number 10. He often played quite a lot on the the left, didn't he, for Manchester United within the 4-4-2, which by all accounts, I've seen an interview with him recently that he did enjoy, even though he's just so strong in in terms of spraying those passes, but went from, yeah, more of a, a 10 to a, deep-lying playmaker, more of a six to be able to just start those attacks. Again, probably partly due to his age and the fact that he wasn't as mobile. Um, I think that's quite common for for a lot of midfielders. You think of Steven Gerrard doing the same. He was number 10 playing just behind Fernando Torres and probably at the peak of his powers at one point um, and then became deep-lying as more of a six. Again, spraying those passes. Michael, why, when a player gets older, do they almost in every instance move back on the pitch why do older players move deeper and deeper uh, I think basically because they lose their pace and their ability to constantly sprint and also because they've got more experience and their game intelligence, intelligence. there you uh, go <laughs> yeah like you said earlier I mean my favourite example of this is uh, Wayne Rooney who was kind of a cross between a number 10 and a number 9 for quite a while then definitely became a number 10 then under Van Howe became a bit of a Almost not box to box midfielder, just a kind of number eight. Played that role for England at Euro 2016. And then when he went to Derby by the end, was kind of an Andrea Pirlo figure. And then kind of shifted into being a player manager, which to me sounds like the ultimate example of like, you know, your gradual <laughs> shift from goal scorer to assister to midfielder to deep line playmaker to player manager to manager it's just been a constant almost like Roy of the Rovers style evolution I think Uh, sensational well uh, we would have loved to widen our scope and look at players either current or historical from from outside England um, uh, and and look at any positional changes of note Michael's mentioned Maldini of course uh, Andrea Pirlo had a, a uh, an era-defining positional change as well. Uh, I was going to chuck out 
Claude Makelele, who I like to mention at every opportunity, who started his career playing on the right side of midfield at Nantes, with Christian Carambo behind him at right back. Uh, but it was at Celta Vigo under Victor Fernandez where uh, Fernandez had the vision to change him to um, to central midfield. Um, there's some quite nice quotes actually. He, he basically said. I'm going to make you play defence midfield next to Mazzinho. But you can get forward. Makalele said, I'm never going to touch the ball. But Mazzinho explained, you'll see. The ball might go out left or right, but it always comes back to the middle. It's the origin of everything. Which I I feel like is one of those quotes that gets more philosophical um, with each retelling, I'm sure. Uh, Makalele said it, it was finding his true position on the pitch that allowed everything to click into place in his career and, like Pirlo, ended up with an era-defining position and role. And it, it, it makes me wonder how many other players just never found their true position, you know, didn't have a manager with the vision and never had this moment of everything clicking into place like Makaleli did. And if I keep thinking about that for too long, I get a bit sad. So it's, maybe it's best not to. And we had Cristiano Ronaldo. We've done whole pods on him and his evolution over his career um, Marquinhos PSG from centre-back to defensive midfielder Mascherano went the other way at Barcelona then you got people like Philip Lahm and his son Joshua Kimmich who kind of done similar things uh, Schweinsteiger of course uh, and Gareth Bale's got to be worth a mention there as well um, just before we finish bit of fun I was hoping that you guys could suggest to me a player that you'd like to see change position. Who have you seen and thought, I've got the vision here, but I don't have the authority? I mean, I, I, I can go first. It's maybe a bit of a jovial one, but I would genuinely like to see it. Um, everyone talks about Edison being so good <laughs> that he could play in midfield. <laughs> they do. I think that, you, you know, Man City could play against Bournemouth again with the greatest of respect to Bournemouth. Bernardo Silva could go in goal and they'll still probably win 5-1. And Edison could play as the 3-8. And that, I would I absolutely love to see that. Bit of a different one, but I think the point still stands. Michael? Tell, tell you what, <laughs> genuinely, I think Edison would be rubbish out there. So do I. This is what I mean. Like, he's too bulky. I think his movements are a little bit... Sometimes when he has to sweep, I think he's quite unconvincing. Yeah. And And... It's not like he's one of those goalkeepers who's always like going past, you know, like doing a feint and going the other way. Like the good thing he is, uh, the good thing, or the thing he's good at, I should say, on the ball is just really accurate long range passing. So like the higher up the pitch, I think the less effective it would be. But I I kind of agree. I I would like to see that just to hopefully disprove the theory. Playing 90 metre passes from the centre circle would just be a complete waste of time. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I agree. Goal kick, goal kick to the opposition. Uh, my one is probably really obvious, but he's not in the Manchester United side uh, at the moment. And I'd, I would like to see Aaron Wambasaka as a centre-back or maybe, I mean, right side of centre-back. I can't ever remember him playing in a three. And uh, I think he's he's got really good defensive attributes, but it's just not what you need to be a fullback in the modern game. So I expect it won't be at Manchester United. Um, and I don't know whether a, another club would take a chance and sign him as, you know, to be a centre-back. But it just feels like that's the obvious switch for him to hopefully uh, rejuvenate his career because he was such a good young, you know, promising young player. Actually started off higher up, I think, in Palace's youth team. He was a, a right winger, but at a professional level, absolutely uh, a centre-back for me. So I would love to see Dwight McNeil accept a future as a left-back or a, a left-wing-back. Mm. Yeah, that's a good because one. Because yeah. at Burnley, he played almost exclusively left midfield and he played very, very well for a young player and everyone went, hold on, but if we're transposing him onto a, a, a different style and a different team, you know, it'd be good to see him on the right wing to see if he's got that sort of cut-in, inverted winger type vibe. And it's pretty early days, but that's where he's playing for Everton. I personally don't think that he is showing quite as much quality in that position to reach the very top of the game. But we know he's got excellent delivery. Um, his, As far as I can see, his, his sort of pressing numbers are pretty impressive for a forward player and therefore maybe that indicates good stamina, good tenacity and, and getting up and down and that sort of thing. His delivery from deep is excellent. Uh, and I just think lean into it, Dwight, because that could, that could really raise your ceiling. But... Um, what do I know? I mean, if, if all of that happens, we could have Ben White right back, Aaron Wambasaka centre back, <laughs> Dwight McNeil left back at World Cup 2026. Do you know what? That is an interesting one, though, because 
he very much for me fits the mold of like a Stuart Downing and Stuart mm. Downing was played he got moved to left back under Brendan Rodgers for a short period and did quite well there actually had a bit of a, a renaissance um, so he fits the same sort of mold so I, I'm, I'm here for that well, one the, the good thing about that was there was a period where Rodgers used uh, Stuart Downing as left back and Jose Enrique as his left sided midfielder which was very Correct, fun yeah. but that's a really good actually when I was kind of thinking about this podcast I did did think about kind of whether wide players can become fullbacks so much anymore because they're playing on the kind of opposite side and mm. whether that shift really makes sense. But I didn't think of uh, McNeil. But that's a very good that's a very good point. I might I might do an article and just steal that idea. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> You're more than welcome to. Uh, I've been stealing your opinions among my friendship group for, <laughs> I mean, more than a decade now. So please do. It's the least I can do for you. Um, I, I well, let's let's. Let's wait and see if Mikolenko is ever unavailable this season and Ruben Vinagre as well. Maybe, maybe we could see McNeil in the left-back role. Uh, that's been a really, really interesting discussion, which I've massively enjoyed having with you. I hope it has been an interesting listen. Thank you if you've listened all the way through. A massive thank you to all of you who listen to this podcast. Um, it, it's been really fun to do this season and you guys are sending some really interesting ideas as well. As you know, we very occasionally, or actually semi-regularly, I'll upgrade it to um, take your ideas and turn them into full pods. So so thank you. Please keep doing that on Twitter to, to any or all of us, whatever it might be, get in touch. Uh, make sure you're reading Michael Mark on The Athletic and, and all the other excellent stuff on there as well. Uh, if you're not a subscriber, theathletic.com forward slash tactics will get you to become one at a discounted rate uh, and we look forward to speaking to you again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast Well I've just learned that Ruben Vinagre is at Everton The Athletic